Well, we are going to be in the book of Ruth again, so if you have a copy and want to open that up or launch it on your device, go ahead and find your way to this um, fascinating book that we've been journeying together in for the last four weeks. And as we think about the book of Ruth, um, let me just catch you up on the story so far. Naomi and her husband Elimelech moved from the promised land to Moab, and he actually dies there. What a tragic time that was. Naomi's two sons marry Moabite women. One of them is named Ruth, and Naomi's sons die in the land of Moab as well. Ruth travels back to Israel with Naomi, and she pledges her loyalty to Naomi and to Israel's God. There's that amazing moment on the road back where she said to Naomi that she will go wherever she goes, and where she stays, she will stay, that her God will be Ruth's God, that Naomi's people would be her people. And so Naomi arrives with Ruth, deeply embittered, believing that God is against her, that he is actually an enemy. And she changes her name from Ruth, which means what? Remember what it means? Pleasant or sweet. And changes her name to bitter. The next morning, Ruth goes out to the field that just so happens to belong to a man named Boaz. We're told that he is a worthy man, and he's also a relative of Naomi. And it just so happens that he is kind to Ruth and makes sure that she is well supplied by food and protected. And she comes back and speaks to Naomi about what happens. Naomi begins to hope again. Maybe God has not forgotten her after all. But as God, as it so happens to go in this story, God isn't moving fast enough for Naomi's taste, and even though Boaz is the relative and can redeem them from their situation, she hatches this dangerous plan that we looked at last week in which uh, Ruth would go to Boaz in the middle of the night and do whatever he tells her to do. Ruth asks Boaz to fulfill his role as a redeemer of their family by marrying her, thus securing her and Naomi's future. We saw that Boaz was honored and wants to do this, but there's another relative who is a redeemer whose duty it is to fill the role of a redeemer. And so even though we're cheering for Ruth and Boaz, two worthy people, two excellent people, there's this other guy that actually has the right and the responsibility to redeem this family. He's a closer relative. But Boaz promises he will fulfill the role of a redeemer if the near relative will not do his duty. So that's where we left everything last week and the end of chapter 3 in this moment of suspense. What's going to happen? So we're going to call our study today, The Best is Yet to Come. Hopefully not giving away too much of the story if you don't know it. And we're going to see in this chapter not simply how things turn out that next morning, but how God is indeed weaving the good times, the bad times, and even the ugly times together in the lives of Ruth and Naomi and Boaz to eventually set the stage for a coming king. So chapter 4, it says Philippians up there. I just realized that. My template didn't get changed. I apologize for this. I look at this over and over again, and I just now saw it. Anyway, back to the text. <laughs> now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down. So this is the next morning after Ruth had come out to him in the middle of the night, proposing that he marry her and redeem their family from poverty so he doesn't waste any time. He goes to the gate and sits down there. Now, the gate of the city is the place where all the business transactions take place. It's the place where judges ruled. It was city hall, but it was at the gate. And we're told, behold, the redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. 
So just as Boaz sat down, it just so happened to be that the very person that he needed to speak to just happened to be walking by at this moment. And we're told that he is the Redeemer. And so let's just review very fast what a Redeemer was. A Redeemer in ancient Israel was a near relative who would take the responsibility of helping a family out, their family, their extended family, but helping them out if they somehow fell into poverty. Now, oftentimes the way they fell into poverty was if they had to sell their land or to sell themselves into servitude. It would be the responsibility of the near Redeemer to come and to buy them back out of that condition. And so Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. Now, my translation reads friend here, but you need to know in the Hebrew, it's kind of a rhyming phrase, which is is almost kind of meaningless. The the New Jewish Publication Society translates it as Mr. So-and-so. So here is Boaz, who needs to speak to this man. We're basically told that he's just Mr. So-and-so. Turn aside, Mr. So-and-so. Sit down here. Now, just wonder and ponder for a moment why the narrator of the book of Ruth doesn't let us know his name. So he, that is Boaz, took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here, and so they sat down. Ten men who were elders in the city would form a quorum where official business could take place. And then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So here, Boaz is telling him about an opportunity for him to acquire more property. Naomi, who went off to Moab with her husband and her two sons, has come back without them. They have died in a foreign land. And in her destitution, she is willing to sell the land that belonged to her husband. So this sounds like a good deal. The the husband is gone. The sons are gone. They would normally pass back to them, but since she doesn't have anyone... It would just be a business exchange. And so Boaz says in verse 4, So I thought I would tell you of it and say, Buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. So there's two potential redeemers. Mr. So-and-so is first up. It is his responsibility to step up and help this family that is impoverished. But if he doesn't want to redeem it, then Boaz will do it. But then Boaz also says, the day you buy it from the, I'm sorry, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite and the widow of the dead in order to perpetuate the name of the dead and his inheritance. (laughs) Oh, by the way, there's a little complication here. It's not just that you're getting this parcel of land. You actually are getting Naomi whom you're responsible to take care of, and also Ruth the Moabitess, her her daughter-in-law, whose husband has passed away, who is the son of Elimelech. Let me put this up as a graphic on the screen. So Elimelech and Naomi married, and they had a son named Malon, but he died in the land of Moab. This is who Ruth had married. And so the Redeemer would step up in the place of Malon and marry Ruth, seeking to have offspring with her, and he would become the heir of the land. So if the Redeemer does this, he actually doesn't get the land in the long run. When this heir turns 13, becomes an adult in the nation of Israel, 
he would become the owner of the property. And so Boaz says here, you're going to do this in order to perpetuate the name of the dead, that is, Elimelech and Malon in his inheritance. Now, having land in the nation of Israel was so important. God had given the promised land to his people, and it was apportioned to families. And so to lose land would be horrible. It would be the equivalent of your name being blotted out. But if a redeemer could step up and perpetuate the name of the person who had passed away with an heir, then that family line continues. Then the redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. What initially looked like maybe a good business deal where he could inherit this, uh, or he could buy this parcel of land and add it to his own wealth, now looks like a, a bad business deal. He doesn't want to, uh, to take the potential of, of losing more money on this. Now what the narrator wants us to see is this man who had the means to redeem them actually is acting a bit selfishly here. The role of the redeemer was to ensure that people didn't end up in poverty long term. It was a way of ensuring that widows or orphans would be looked after. So when he sees the added cost of this, he backs out and says, I don't want it. You redeem it, Boaz. If you want to do it, I give you my right, right to redemption. And then we're told in verse 7, this interesting little way they sealed the deal. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he withdrew his sandal. Now remember, there, I mean, paper and pens were not in abundance then. And they had to have a way of, of formally recognizing this. And so the way you could prove that you had the right of purchase or that you had purchased it is by having something that belonged to the other person that was given as a sign that this seal was completed. And so he withdrew his sandal and gave it to Boaz. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Limelech and all that belonged to Kilian and to Malon. These were the two sons who, who died from the union of Ruth and Elimelech. So he says, look, you guys are all witnesses that I have done what is right. I have acquired from the hand everything that belonged to them. And he says in verse 10, also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife. Someone says here, I don't like this notion of buying wives. It seems so primitive and repressive. If you have that instinct within you, I'm, I agree with you. That sounds weird to our eyes. But he's not buying her as a slave. Remember, Ruth had requested that Boaz would do this very thing that he would spread the, his wings over her and that she would find shelter in his life. And so this is not a, a buying of a slave. This is a buying, in a sense, of investing in a person who needs help. And Boaz says, I'm, I'm willing to step up to the plate and do that. And so he says, Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife. And here's the reason. To perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. And so, Ruth the Moabitess had come to him in the middle of the night and says, will you redeem us in order that we may perpetuate the name of my husband and his father? And he says, yes, I'm going to do that. 
And so there's maybe an element of love between Ruth and Boaz going on. No doubt it blossomed into that. But their intention in, in forming this marriage was to ensure that a family's name was not blotted out from the nation of Israel. David Strain, in his commentary, put it like this. He said, there are two redeemers in the passage. One serves only himself and has no name. Boaz, on the other hand, serves others selflessly, and his name has never been blotted out. Boaz is willing to step up and assume the responsibility that Mr. So-and-so wasn't willing to do, has done the right thing, and we know the name of Boaz to this day. But Mr. So-and-so, he's, he goes off into obscurity. We don't know him. Verse 11. Then all the people were at the gate, and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house, like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. Now this sounds like just something that, that just might be like, I don't know, a spiritual kind of thing to say. May the Lord do so and so in your life. But notice what he's saying here. His elders are saying, May the Lord make this woman who's coming into your house like Rachel and like Leah, who built up the house of Israel together. What's the significance of this? Rachel and Leah, if you remember the story in the book of Genesis, were two matriarchs of Israel. It's actually a bit more complicated than that. If you want to read the origin story of the 12 tribes of Israel, you can go to Genesis chapter 29 and, and chapter 30. But let me just tell you, it's a really sordid story. <laughs> you see, Jacob was a descendant of Abraham and Isaac. Abraham was fathered Isaac. Isaac fathered Jacob. And as, as Jacob had his eye on Rachel, whom he loved, her dad tricked him into marrying her sister. Leah. And he was mad about that. He had worked seven years, served him in order to, to have the right to bring her into his house. And he was tricked. And so now he has two wives. And these two wives have this bitter rivalry going with one another. And so they're trying to outproduce the other in terms of, of children. And it gets so complicated that they're willing to bring their maidservants into, into the story. We might put it that way. And so Jacob, we think of the patriarchs as these great godly people, but Jacob was a rascal, and here he's impregnated four different women who become the 12 tribes, their offspring become the 12 tribes of Israel. So when, if you read that with your kids, you just need to be ready to explain some stuff. When the, when the elders here say, may the Lord make these two women, I'm sorry, make the women, uh, the woman who is coming into your house, like these two women, Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. He's, they're not suggesting that she's some kind of uh, squirrely character, but that she has a role to play in building up Israel, just like Leah and Rachel and all their conniving did as well. David Ulrich, or, uh, Dean Ulrich, rather, in his book, uh, From Famine to Fullness, helps us understand a little bit of what they mean here. He says, if, if Rachel and Leah had built up the house of Israel, that house was, metaphorically speaking, in ruins during the time of, during the judges period, the witnesses prayed that Ruth would build up, even restore the house. What a prayer of a woman of Moabite descent. Ruth had become a true daughter of Abraham. And taking this woman who had gone by the name Ruth the Moabitess over and over again to now say that 
she has a key role to play in building up Israel again is, is really a fascinating thing to say. But these men also bless, speak a, a, this prayer of blessing and say, may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. Now, if the story of Jacob and Leah and Rachel was scandalous, this one is the very definition of scandalous. You can read the story of Tamar and Judah in Genesis chapter 38. Remember, Judah was one of the offspring of, of Jacob and Leah. But in, in this story, I'm going to try to keep this as G-rated as I can. Um, Judah has a son named Ur, who marries Tamar, a foreigner. Ur passes away. And to make a long story short, Tamar dressed up like a, a temple prostitute and seduced her father-in-law, Judah. And in that union came Perez, who is one of the grandfathers of Boaz. Right? Crazy stuff in the book of Genesis, y'all. <laughs> And so when the men say, may your house be like the house of Perez, they're basically saying, may it be like your, your house that you've grown up in, your family line, whom Tamar and Judah bore because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. In other words, as God worked even in some very dark circumstances to bring about the family line that Boaz now finds himself in, they're saying, may your offspring be used by the Lord as well. Again, Dean Ulrich helps us understand a little bit what's going on here. He said, this comparison is made between the son that Ruth would bear and Perez, whom Tamar bore. Both mothers hardly seem to be likely candidates to advance God's plan of redemption in deteriorating circumstances. The witnesses were hopeful that Yahweh, the Lord, would be pleased again to fulfill his promises through the offspring of an Israelite man and a Gentile woman. What had just happened in their midst made them recall the past, and they could not help but wonder if God was not on the move again. So they see Boaz step up to take responsibility for this foreign woman, this Israelite marrying a Gentile woman. And they're wondering, what is God up to here? May the Lord move in your life and in this union, just like he's moved in the past. And so... Verse 13, we're told that Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. If we do a quick pan of the audience right now, everyone's cheering and celebrating. This is what we wanted all along. We didn't want Ruth to marry this other Mr. So-and-so guy. We don't know his character, but we do know that Boaz is a man who is worthy. And she's a worthy woman. And we wanted to see this happen all along. But look again at what this verse says. Ruth, I'm sorry, Boaz took Ruth. You may remember as we've gone through this book, she's always been described as Ruth the Moabite. But she no longer has that designation. She's simply Ruth. And Boaz took Ruth, and she has become his wife. And then we're told in the rest of this verse, and he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. <laughs> we've been on this painstaking journey all along, and now in one verse, we go from their marriage to their honeymoon to nine months of developing this baby to the baby being born. <laughs> and I kind of want to say to the author of Ruth, could you just slow this down a little bit? We want to savor this. We want to enjoy this. This is what we've been rooting for. <laughs> but the scene moves on. 
Then, that is after the birth of this offspring, the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. They're blessing the Lord, too, just like the other people asked the Lord to bless their union. Now they're blessing the Lord. And they say to Naomi, he's not left you this day without a redeemer. Now, they're talking about Boaz, right? He's the redeemer who stepped up. But it would seem like that's who they're speaking about, except that's not who they're speaking about. This is on the day of the birth of this child. And they're now saying to her, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. She says in verse, they say in verse 15, he shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. And here we see this complete reversal happen in the life of Naomi, who went away, as she said, full, had come back to Israel empty, having lost her family. And now this child is it's preferably going to be a restorer of life, a nourisher of her old age. Her future is secure. And then they say, for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons. We just need to pause for a second and, and rest on this description for a moment. In the ancient world, what you wanted more than anything is a son. Because a son ensured the, the security of the family. And in this patriarchal society, the sons were the ones who were responsible to provide and to protect. And here they say, this, this daughter-in-law of yours, Ruth, she is worth more than seven sons. Isn't that an amazing description? What accolades are given to her? How her life is now being praised by others because of her willingness to sacrifice and to serve her mother-in-law. She has indeed become worth more than seven sons. Don't forget seven is a sign of fullness. A full family with seven sons. Ruth is more valuable to you than seven sons. So your daughter-in-law has given birth to him. Ah, so they have been speaking of this offspring now as the redeemer. Very interesting. Verse 16, then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, A son has been born to Naomi. And they named him Obed. Doesn't this sound weird to our ears? The son had been born to Ruth and Boaz. But now they're saying that this son has been born to you. No doubt they're thinking in terms like they did back then of a grandson being a son on that. But it's amazing. And they named him Obed. And what's interesting is Obed is short for Obadiah, which means servant of Yahweh. So may this, may this child, this unlikely child, be a servant of Yahweh. May he be a restorer of your life who helps guarantee your future. And then they named him Obed, and we're told that he is the father of Jesse, and the father of David. What does this mean? Remember, the book opened up with this phrase, in the days when the judges ruled. And we're told by the end of the book of Judges that in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. They had no one to lead them. They needed a king. And now we're told that from the union of Boaz 
and Ruth came Obed, who fathered Jesse, who, oh, by the, by the way, fathered David. Yeah, that David, the king, the great king of Israel. And so we get a little glimpse of what God has been up to and moving the pieces around of history to give Israel this king. Ian Dugan, in his commentary, said this, At the end of the book, we discover that God has in all of this been pursuing bigger plans than bringing together uh, two, uh, I'm sorry, worthy individuals, two worthy individuals is what I should say, what looked like a simple story of personal emptiness filled and personal needs met turns out to be God's way of meeting a far greater need. God used all of these events to bring about his own goals, which were so much bigger than any of the characters involved in the story could possibly have imagined. In other words, God has been at work answering their prayers, Naomi's prayers, Ruth's prayers, Boaz's prayers, the prayers of these people, both the elders of the gates and these women who are around Naomi, to do far more than they could possibly ask or imagine. They had no idea that this, this senate would then produce David. So we're told in verse 18, and this is how the, the book ends. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Ram, Ram fathered Aminadab, Aminadab fathered Nashan, Nashan fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, and Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. Why does this beautiful short story that we've been hanging at the seat of our, our chairs listening to and, and wondering what's going to happen, why does it end with a genealogy? Genealogies are boring. Sinclair Ferguson helps us out when he says, Why end this beautiful story with a family tree, a piece of dusty historical information about long-dead people? But the final words of the book of Ruth are actually the most important in the book and contain its deepest message. The final sentence sets the previous four chapters in an entirely new light. How is that so? Because they're showing what God has been up to all along. You maybe never have read this genealogy in the book of Ruth. But if you ever picked up the Gospel of Matthew and began reading from chapter 1, verse 1, you read this genealogy. We go to the book of Matthew, this is what we see. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. You read down a little bit more. Salmon, the, uh, the father of Boaz by Rahab. By the way, that is Rahab the prostitute. You remember from the book of Judges? That's the same Rahab. Boaz's mother was that prostitute. Maybe that's why he had a special place in his heart for those who were down and out. Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse... The, fa uh, the father of David the king. And David, as we read, was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. We read down a little bit further. Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. And we're told that she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. <laughs> Do you see what's going on here, my friends? The book of Ruth ends by telling us about the king David who would to come. But Ruth, in the story of scriptures, tells us how God was at work in all of these things, the good, the bad, and the ugly, 
to ensure that Jesus would arrive on the scene. He had designs much greater than giving us King David. He wants to give us King Jesus. And that's some of the mystery of this book. And so just three points of application, my friends. The first one is this. Let's marvel at the providence of God. You see, as we look at the book of Ruth, we're we're meant to see how God has weaved all these pieces together to bring about what is a great end to this story. But even that's not the very end. So when we say let's marvel at the providence of God, let's remember how we're defining providence. The scripture teaches that God not only created the world, but also rules this world in such a way that everything, the good, the bad, and the ugly, fits into the real-life story of the salvation of this world in Jesus Christ. So we're meant to marvel at that providence of God. Again, Sinclair Ferguson is helpful, helping it apply to our lives. He says, The explanation for much that takes place in our lives lies well beyond our own lives and may be hidden from us throughout our lives. For God does not mean to touch only our lives, but what he does through our lives. He has the lives of others in view, even those yet unborn. This is why life can seem so untidy for the people of God. He has not yet finished his business. There may be many loose ends. The tapestry is only partially complete. He has still much weaving to do in which he will bring these loose ends together, perhaps in someone else's life in the future, long after we are gone. God means to bring blessing and answers to prayer beyond anything we could ever ask or imagine, just as he did here. So when I say let's marvel at the providence of God, we mean not only marveling at the providence of God in the lives of Ruth and Naomi, and Boaz, but also to marvel at the providence of God in our own lives as well. And that means trusting God in the messiness of our life, even when we don't know at any given moment what he might be up to. Maybe you're at a place in your life where you find it difficult to marvel at the providence of God. Maybe you feel like Ruth and Naomi did at some point in their life where everything seems to be going wrong and you wonder what God is up to. Maybe you're having difficulty believing that God loves you or that he could be in any way for you, that he could make any kind of good come out of the mess that you find yourself in. And maybe, maybe you're just having a hard time believing that God could weave anything beautiful from the dark strands of your life. You see, the book of Ruth is meant to encourage you to see that the providence of God does indeed work all things together, even the messy ends of your life, for your good. You're meant to see in the microcosm of Ruth and Boaz and Naomi, these people who lived in the backwoods of Israel, something of the bigger picture of what God is always up to when he knits our lives into the story of Jesus. And although at this moment you may not be able to see what God is up to, or maybe even have difficulty believing that God could be up to anything, we're meant to read the book of Ruth and to see what he did there and to conclude these are the kind of things that God does. He takes the lives of obscure people, hurting people, and weaves them into the story of Jesus. And we're meant to think that maybe he can do that with my life as well. You see, if God was at work in the lives of these women and this bachelor, then maybe we can have the audacity to believe that he just might be at work in my life too, even when I can't trace his hand. 
maybe I'll have the audacity to believe that I can trust his heart. And so, let's marvel at the providence of God. But let's also trust in the greatest redeemer of all. We saw Boaz step up to the plate to help these women in need. He was willing to, to take on all that was involved in helping them have a better life, to ensure for them that the best was yet to come. He made himself poor in order that they might become richer. That's exactly what our Lord Jesus Christ does. We're told in the book of 2 Corinthians, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Jesus, the greatest redeemer of all, impoverished himself. What do I mean by that? He, he took the nails. He took the crown of thorns. We're told in the book of Revelation, those words that we read at the beginning of our service, worthy are you. There's so many incredible connections here. Remember at chapter 2, verse 1, how Boaz was described, right? He was what? A worthy man. And he points to that man who is far, far more worth more than, than Boaz could ever be worth, as great as Boaz was. Worthy are you, Jesus, to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed, you redeemed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom, and priests are our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Did you catch that? Jesus, at great personal cost to himself, redeemed us to give us a future that we could, we could hardly even dream about. What kind of future? What does this say? If you believe in Jesus, no matter how bad it is right now, how much bad luck you have, how much life caves in you right now, you are going to reign as kings and queens of the new creation. That is, that is amazing. That's how our greater Boaz, Jesus, came through for us. And so, my friends, let's believe that the best is yet to come. Boaz stepped up to help secure a better future for Ruth and Naomi. And the best was yet to come and store for them. What if God were to raise up a generation of Ruths, women whose gutsy faith in God leads them to sacrificially give of themselves to others and service to others? And what if God were to raise up a generation of Boazes who have experienced the kindness of God and, and in turn are kind to others, especially women? What if God were to raise up a generation of Ruths and Boazes who take shelter under the wings of the Almighty and who trust themselves into his care, even in the messiness of life? And what if we learn to trust that God is at work not only in the good times, but also in the bad times and the ugly times? weaving our lives into the story that he is telling about Jesus. And what if we really believed that the best is indeed yet to come for us? That Ruth and Boaz's greatest descendant ensures by his own poverty and subsequent glory that we will reign on this renewed earth together with him. Where there's no more sorrow, no more widows, no more orphans, no more self-consumed individuals looking out for themselves. No more pain. No more tears. No more death. Well, that, my friends, is the gospel according to Ruth. And may you trust in the sovereign providence of God, believing that the best is yet to come.